Our scripture reading today is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 9. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be here with you this morning. Uh, just out of curiosity, who has finished all of their Christmas shopping, like 100%? Okay, a couple. What, who's at like 75% done? That's me. I'm at 75. Okay, who's at like zero? All right. Just as a heads up, Christmas is next week. So um, anyways, let me pray for us. Uh, and then we're going to jump, jump into our text this morning. Obviously, we're in Isaiah chapter 61. So would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we come before you this morning, and uh, we just want to confess to you that uh, so often we are uh, distracted from who you are. We're distracted from your word. Um, God, I just ask that you would be so kind and so gracious and generous to be at work in our hearts, God. Uh, thank you that you love your people with a perfect love so we can be confident in our prayers to you, uh, knowing that you are indeed at work in us through your Holy Spirit. So I ask, in accordance with your will, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to your word, that you would change us from uh, the inside, help us to love the things you love, God, and hate the things that you hate. Uh, would you please fill us with your Holy Spirit, God? We depend on you. We need you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have been... Uh, exploring the expectations that Isaiah is building up for us for Advent. Isaiah tells us about who our Savior is going to be and what, you know, what we should expect him to be like, the roles he's fulfilling, his identity. Isaiah is telling us about all these things. So uh, we have seen so far that 
when it concerns Advent, when we're thinking about the child born unto us, Isaiah has thus far told us uh, that this child is God. He's the sovereign God who rules over all things. Uh, He is the mighty king who's going to bring perfect peace to all of his people. Uh, He's the high priest, the great high priest, who is going to take away the sins of his people and then give them his righteousness. And what we're going to see today, what we're going to explore today, is how Isaiah 61 shows us uh, that when it comes to what we should expect from our Savior, we should expect that he is the prophet, that he is God's true prophet who is going to relieve us of our burdens. He's going to take our burdens away. Now, anyone here familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress? A couple, okay, and, you know, just... By that reference, you already can sense that I'm very committed to my identity as a homeschool dad. Um, But I love this book. It is so many areas of it really get to the heart. Uh, We've we've done it for like family worship time uh, a a couple times now. Uh, But Pilgrim's Progress, if you're not familiar with it, it's an allegory. It's written a long time ago by a guy named John Bunyan, but it's an allegory for the Christian life. Um... There's a main character, and guess what? His name is Christian. And Christian, he is representative of all God's people, right? He represents all believers. And uh, if you want to move to the next slide, we can see Christian here. He's just a sad, lost-looking, burdened child. And again, he represents every believer. And I know we're all strong, capable adults in this room. Many of us are very strong and very capable. But what I want us to consider, what I want us to think about is the fact that no matter how strong, no matter how capable we might be, there is some part of our life, some dark recess of our heart that reflects that kid, that poor, lost, burdened child. Throughout this story, we see that Christian deals with some tensions, both internal and external. Internally, uh, he's dealing with his fears and his doubts, his insecurities. Like he's, he thinks he's not good enough to make it to God's kingdom. Externally, he got, he's got a ton of opposition from all sorts of people. Like his family even is trying to convince him not to go on this journey. People end up persecuting him, trying to kill him. And so what is clear in this book is that Christian needs help. He needs someone to set him free and bring him into God's promised kingdom. Isaiah chapter 61 is about God's spirit-anointed prophet who has come not only to tell us the good news about God's kingdom, but to actually affect that message. He comes to bring us into God's kingdom. He comes to relieve us of our burdens. And just like we see in the story, right, the comfort that we see in Isaiah chapter 61, right? The year of the Lord's favor, the binding up of the brokenhearted. This is for people who recognize their need. Do you guys remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the poor and afflicted in the book of Isaiah, right? The poor and afflicted aren't necessarily referring to material wealth, right? They're referring to people who have recognized their neediness, their need for God to intervene in their lives. 
So as we just work through the text this morning, something that we can be thinking about, just a simple question. Do you recognize your need for God's grace? Are you burdened by your failures, your insecurities, your fears? Are you burdened by shame and guilt? Are you burdened by a turbulent, restless soul? Do you know that something is not right? Not with like your money and your spouse or anything else, but something is not right inside. If that's you, then we have good news this morning. And it's captured in the main point of the text, the main idea. God's true prophet is sent to proclaim and affect freedom and restoration for his people. Nice and simple. God's prophet is sent to proclaim and effect. He's come to make it happen. He's come to make freedom and restoration happen. This work and message falls into three parts. One, it is about restoration. Two, it is about vengeance. And three, it is about an unbreakable assurance. So let's continue working through the text. Point number one here. In verse one, we see a figure who has been sent. And then in verse two, we see that he has been sent to proclaim. All right, this is the role of a prophet in a nutshell. Someone sent to proclaim. uh, Sent to proclaim a message from God. On top of that, we see that this prophet has been especially anointed for this purpose, right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of God's favor. So a lot of proclamation, a lot of announcement. My point is that this is clearly a prophetic role that is being fulfilled right here. All right, the the prophet, the intent of the prophet is described in seven statements that we see right at the beginning in verses one through three. Uh, He comes to bring good news. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted. He comes to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort, to give, and to grant. right, so in other words, we have a message and a work that revolves around comfort, favor, liberty, beauty, restoration. This is clearly a message of God's grace for his people. So what Isaiah does is create an expectation, right? We've been talking about expectations. Isaiah 61 is creating an expectation that when the Spirit comes as God's anointing, that is when the grace of God has arrived. When this prophet comes who is anointed With God's spirit, we know for a fact that God has turned to show his people mercy and grace. All right, and we see this point pretty much confirmed in verse 7, right? Verse 7 says that instead of shame, God's people will have a double portion, or that's double favor. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice, and and they shall have everlasting joy. So when God's spirit-anointed prophet comes, We know that God has turned favorably towards his people. And again, this should shed some light on how we look at the baptism of Jesus Christ. All right, Matthew chapter 3, at his baptism, the Spirit descends upon Jesus and it rests upon him. 
All right, the spirit of the Lord is upon him. It has anointed him. And you know what this tells us? It tells us that God has shown grace to his people definitively in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's grace. He has come to free us and restore us. He has come to give his people everlasting joy. God wants us to know that when this spirit-anointed prophet comes, that the time of restoration and salvation is at hand. And you know, that, that's something we might know up here in our heads. But I think we need to remember that a little more often, that the time of salvation is now, that the time of restoration is now. Because whatever baggage you might have in your past, whatever struggles you might have in your life right now, whatever distractions, whatever hopes and wishes that you have for this world, whatever it is that draws our, way, uh, our eyes away from Jesus, understand that restoration, freedom is found nowhere else. We are so distracted. I am so distracted. Our eyes are constantly looking for other things to provide the satisfaction that only God's restoration can. Like we're looking for some kind of functional savior, whether it's health or happiness or wealth or prestige, we are looking for something to free us from our burden inside. What I want us to understand today is that Isaiah 61 teaches us that because God's spirit-anointed prophet has arrived, restoration is at hand. Where Jesus is present, restoration is not far off. You know, I think the media has a lot to do with our distractions. Uh, right? That's their job. It's to distract us. Pit us against one another. Distract us. But really, I think it's a bit deeper than that. We're distracted by our own desires, our own insecurities. It is something inside of us that pushes us towards these things. But what Isaiah 61 wants us to expect from our Savior, from the coming of Jesus Christ, is that true salvation, true restoration is found nowhere else. And look, I understand that you all have trials in your life, difficulties, obligations, Obligations at work can be crushing. The well-being of your kids can weigh on your soul like nothing else can. And your health and the health of your loved ones can cause an incredible amount of stress in your lives. And you know what? I can't tell you how God is going to bring you out of those trials. I can't tell you how it's going to work out. That information belongs to the inscrutable counsel of God. But I can promise you that God will be with you. Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. And I can promise that where Jesus is present, restoration is not far off. That's the expectation that Isaiah wants us to have for the coming of our Savior. So just look. Uh, a quick point of application is, is that we have access 
to this restoration in the presence of Jesus Christ. So why not spend time with your Savior? Why not spend time with Jesus Christ? And look, I don't want to guilt you into doing your quiet time, right? Jesus loves you. Like if if you believe in Jesus Christ, God loves you perfectly, no matter how consistent you might be. Like God is consistent in his love for you, no matter how inconsistent you might be with your quiet time. But the point is that time with Jesus is inherently life-giving, inherently restorative. You know, one thing uh, we have been trying to implement as a family since we've arrived here is to have intentional one-on-one time with our children. And you know what? To be honest, it has been difficult for me. Uh, It is like one of the first things that I forget about when things get busy is to carve out some space so that I can have one-on-one time uh, with my kids. But last week, I was able to take my oldest daughter out. Uh, We live right by Toguchi Beach, if you guys are familiar with that. So we just walked to Toguchi Beach. Uh, I brought a bag of chips with me, and we get there. Uh, We get to a place that, you know, it's not like a ton of people were around uh, because it was kind of a day like this, but we got to a place where we could just hang out ourselves. We sat in the sand, ate some chips, talked, threw some rocks, found some sea glass, threw some more rocks. And you know what? Like, it was so life-giving to me. Like, I really, really needed that time. You know, maybe more than she did. And we were just hanging out, right? Like, we didn't have expectations, really, for each other. I didn't expect her to be like a different way. I just wanted to be her to be herself, right? In, in a much greater way, when you come to Jesus to spend time with him, you have access to something that is restorative, something that is life-giving. And you know what? He's not expecting you to be a different person. He's not expecting you to act holier than you think you are or uh, behave a certain way. He already knows your deepest secrets, and your deepest struggles. He just wants you to come to him. He wants you to know that belonging comes before behavior. We have access to this when we come to our Lord. And you know, the reason why we can be so certain that where Jesus is present, restoration is present, is because of how God's prophets were commissioned in the Old Testament. They weren't just commissioned to be like speakers, but they were commissioned to be doers, like they did stuff. They were agents of restoration. So you think about the life of Elijah, if you're familiar with Elijah, right? He proclaimed God's message, but he also did miracles. He encouraged the faithful. Uh, He killed the prophets of Baal, right? Very hands-on. God's prophets... Uh, are given this task, not just to tell and announce, but to actually perform God's restorative work. And Isaiah 61 tells us that just this, that Jesus Christ has come to make this restoration happen. 
That is why we can be confident that, that when we are with Jesus, restoration is not far off. That's why we can sing with confidence, O come, O come, true prophet of the Lord. We can say those words with joyful expectation. Yet something we need to reckon with is that this is not a message of restoration for all without question. Um, We see vengeance paired with restoration. So that brings us to our second point. If you look at verse 2, God's prophet comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Sounds a bit ominous. But thankfully, Jesus himself teaches on this passage, and he gives us a concrete example of what this means. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 4, and we will read from verses... Sixteen through twenty-nine. Keep in mind, this is where Jesus quotes from Isaiah sixty-one. All right, and Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you have heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down a cliff. So what's going on here? Jesus reads this magnificent passage about restoration. And then he says, he looks to the people and he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And at this point, everyone's cheering for him, right? They spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words. But like the tone changes really quickly after that. Why? It's because Jesus gives two examples of God saving Gentiles, non-Jews, in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And then from there, they wanted to kill him. 
First they marveled at him, then they were filled with wrath towards him. And here's like the point why, why they felt this way. It's because Jesus was saying that God's grace is in no way conditioned on cultural or ethnic background. It wasn't their Jewishness that was going to save these people. And that's not that being Jewish is bad, um, but during the time of Jesus Christ, the Jews and especially the religious leaders thought that they were owed the grace of God because of their lineage, because they could trace their family line back down to Abraham. They thought that God owed them, that God owed them grace. Okay, no matter who you are, that is a dangerous place to be. There is no social or cultural capital that we can bring before God, right? The things that give us status and respect in this world, they don't carry any weight with God. So whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, like no matter where you're from, there is only one question you must ask. Have you recognized your need for the grace of God? Do you cry out? Have you recognized that you are needy and do you cry out to help for him? That is, the mes- that is who the, this message of restoration is for. But for those who think that they can save themselves or that they are owed salvation for whatever reason it may be, this is a message of vengeance. Right? That's the dividing line. That is the criteria. The grace of God is for those who belong to Jesus, for those who have submitted to him regardless of ethnic background, regardless of cultural status. So you're not guilty because of your ethnic background. You're not guilty because of the color of your skin. Right? It is a sad thing that people have, have made other people feel that way, that churches have made certain people feel that way, that the grace of God is more accessible to these people rather than these people. That is a sad thing. But we're not guilty because of what we look like or where we're from. We're guilty because we've sinned against God, because we've loved our glory more than his. But the God whose rule we've despised and whose instruction we've ignored extends grace upon grace to us. Not grace upon judgment, not grace upon rule keeping, but it is grace and grace and grace for those who recognize their neediness, for God to intervene in their lives. This is a message of comfort and freedom no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, as long as you recognize that one simple truth. And this brings us to our last point. The reason, or the, yeah, this is basically the reason for our restoration. This is the reason why we can have such a great assurance. And it's, it really is down to a, a very counterintuitive thing, I believe. Because you see, in verse 8, we see a significant shift in the oracle in terms of content. Verses 1 describe the messenger and the message of restoration, 
And then verse 8, right here, in verse 8, we have the reason, the cause, the basis of this restoration. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. That is why, that, that is why God is going to restore his people. Because he loves justice and hates injustice. And that's kind of interesting to me because wouldn't we expect that God is going to restore us because he is loving or because he loves mercy? But actually the reason for our restoration is the fact that he, lo he loves justice because God is just. You know, I think God's justice is a rather sobering thing to think about. I think we often forget about it because, I mean, we don't like it. We don't like to consider the fact that we have all wronged God and robbed him of glory. But we should understand that God is not only a God of mercy and love, but a God of justice. And God can never be anything other than who he is. He is always God, everything that God is. So that means his love never decreases. You don't have to worry about his love waxing or waning. But it also means that his righteousness and his justice are never altered. He can never be anything less than perfect. Therefore, God is no less loving or just from one moment to the next. His love is just and his justice is loving. God is absolute, unceasing goodness and perfection. And you know what? That's intimidating because that's not what we're like. Right? No matter what we hear in our culture, you know, I, I know that there's this assumption that if you leave people alone, they'll just turn out to be good. Like the less influence, the less correction, the better. Right? We'll just turn out to be good. Like the, the whole saying, just follow your heart because that's what's going to be best for you. Not only is that awful advice, but it is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us. Like, have you ever thought about the flood recorded in Genesis? It is really actually a, a very heavy and sobering thing. Like in the days of Noah, Genesis chapter 6, um, God let people do what they wanted, right? He let them follow their hearts. He let them be. And then what happened? Well, Genesis records that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a lot of evil. The reason evil spread across the land is because it already existed in the hearts of men and women. And you know what? God in his perfect goodness and his boundless goodness and justice flooded the earth, wiped out civilizations. That's heavy. God's justice is sobering. And you know what? I, like, the last thing that I am communicating, or at least my intention, the last thing that I want to communicate is a message of doom and gloom. Right, that is not the good news that we rest upon. So I want you to know, of course, that God is for you, that he loves you, and that for any and all who would come to him, there is one thing, grace upon grace. 
But I'm also not trying to apologize for a God whose ways are perfect, whose judgments are far beyond my comprehension. But the reason I want us to just consider and reckon with this for a minute is that's because Isaiah is telling us that if we think about God's justice, then we're going to see that we have a much deeper and stronger foundation for our understanding of his grace. And that is exactly what Isaiah gets at in verses 8 and 9. Hey, this is, it's mind-boggling, right? God's justice, his terrifying justice is the basis for the favor that he has on us. In verse 8, Isaiah writes that the people will be restored because God loves justice. That's crazy. And then if you're following in your Bibles, right, you'll see that the last half of verse 8 into verse 9, it contains the implications of this truth that God loves justice. Because God loves justice, he will faithfully give his people their recompense, right? That's a repayment. He will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. It's all good stuff because God loves justice. God is speaking of our recompense, right? Recompense, that is a, pay, a repayment, a repayment demanded by justice. So our repayment is favor, blessing, restoration, an eternal covenant of God's favor. Like, isn't that a bit weird? Because what do we deserve? We deserve death. The one who sins shall die. All have sinned. God's people in the Old Testament were sent into exile because they transgressed his covenant, because they didn't want him. And so they were sent away from his presence, sent away from life. Adam and Eve, they were sent away from God's presence, away from the tree of life, because they disobeyed him. So how do we come to receive as recompense, that's a repayment that justice demands, how do we receive the blessing of an eternal covenant of God's favor? How does that happen? It's because of something that God does. You see, when Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, uh, in, in the book of Luke, he leaves off something that is really significant. So I want us to see this together. So it's up on the screen. Here's the verse from Isaiah. Right, the spirit of the Lord is upon his prophet to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And here's what Jesus does with it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And that's where he ends it. We're missing something, aren't we? Jesus cuts off the part about God's vengeance. And the reason why Jesus can cut off this part about God's vengeance is because God's vengeance was poured out on him. Because God executed his judgment, his righteous vengeance on his son, the child born unto us. You know what? The day of vengeance was fulfilled on the day that Jesus hung on a cross. 
Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures, not change them. This is done. The day of vengeance is done in the death of Christ. This is why we can look at God's justice and see it as the reason for our restoration. Favor, restoration, all the good things become our recompense because of God's justice. God's justice ensures that. I mean, that's incredible. I cannot get over that. That because of God's justice, not his love, not his mercy, but because he's righteous, we're going to have the full blessings of God's eternal favor. Because our sins were really and truly punished on the cross, we can be certain that God will never, ever visit the penalty of our sins upon us. They were paid in full in the death of Christ. And you know what? Because God is just, he's not going to punish the same sins twice. So he's not going to punish your sins in the death of Christ and then somehow hold on to a grudge against you. Because God is just, because God will not punish the same sins twice, there is not even a chance, a remote chance, that God is holding on to some little form of judgment. He's saving it for you. It's done. That is the expectation that Isaiah wants us to have for our Savior, that he's going to take care of all of it. We started off uh, thinking about Pilgrim's Progress, and spoiler alert, last chapter of the book, Christian comes all the way up to the celestial city, right? He's overcome so many obstacles, had so many fights, comes all the way up to the end, yet he is terrified that he's actually not going to make it because he, there's the sea, right? There's a sea in between him and the city, and the sea is called death. And that's not a sea that I would like to step my feet into. Yet in this sea, there's a path that'll keep you above water, but you just can't see it. You can't see it with your physical eyes. So Christian, he wades into the water. He tries to make some progress, but ultimately, he basically says, I don't have what it takes. I can't make it. I haven't been a faithful pilgrim. Why do I deserve to be here? Yet there's another character with him whose name is Hopeful. Hope personified. And he pulls him across he pulls him across this sea when Christian has no strength left in him. And Christian makes it to the city. He enjoys all the blessings of God's favor. Some of you are just like that. Afraid that you're not going to make it to God's kingdom because you haven't been a faithful pilgrim. And you know what? We haven't been faithful pilgrims. But our hope, the Christian hope, does not rest on how faithful we've been. It rests on how faithful Jesus has been to us. How faithful he's been to fulfill the scriptures. 
because our sins were fully and truly punished in him. Punished in Jesus Christ, our hope is built on nothing less than the unchangeable character of God. Understand this, church. God's justice demands your place in heaven. That is the hope we have for Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for sending us a perfect savior. Thank you for your generosity towards us. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for the acceptance and the belonging that we have with you because of the work of your son. We don't have to ever be worried or scared that you're going to be disappointed or angry with us. We belong with you because of the work of your son. So God, I pray that you would deepen our trust in him, that you would point us to him constantly, place our hope in him, Lord. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.